If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Better with Dr. Erica, hosted by Dr. Erica, provides support and guidance in navigating stress-related challenges to transform your relationship to self-care. Each episode arms you with the tools needed to be better, do better, and live better. There was an incredible episode that you should check out called Touch and Connections as Tools for Healing and Better Mental Health. In this episode, her guest breaks down ways to use physical touch as a form of healing for trauma and grief. Check out Better with Dr. Erica on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. For instance, you got an infant and it's like, wow, they're healthy and they're doing well. There's a good chance that parents might feel a little bit uncomfortable with all those compliments because they feel like then something bad is going to happen to them. But if you say, mashallah, then that clears out for you. A lot of times they will say internally with themselves, maybe giving them the look like, stop talking about my child in this context. Hi, you're listening to Healthcare for Humans podcast, the podcast dedicated to educating you on how to care for culturally diverse communities so you can be a better healer. This is about everything that you wish you knew to really care for the person in front of you, not just a body system. Let's learn together. This is part two of our conversation with Ahmed Ali. To hear the introduction to this topic and the full guest intro, please listen to the previous episode. Ahmed Ali is a pharmacist by profession and the executive director of the Somali Health Board. In part two of this conversation, we discuss what to be aware of during a patient encounter like naming and traditional clothing, how to counsel about nutrition in a culturally appropriate way, then we review a common supplement used in the community that I certainly wasn't asking about, and then end the episode talking about being careful about complimenting too much and bringing on the evil eye and the numerous programs that the Somali Health Board runs to care for the community. Here's Ahmed Ali. Okay, I wanted to make sure to touch on a few things relevant in a clinic visit for clinicians. For example, understanding how Somali individuals are named, because I think, especially for my family, there's a lot of confusion when we immigrated here. But I think it's similar, actually, in the Somali community, where the first name is the given name. So, for example, for me, my given name is Raj. And the second name is the name of the child's father. So, Sundar, which is my last name, is actually my dad's first name. And when we came here, people were so confused and they just made our whole family name Sundar. So my dad's name is now the last name for everybody. As you know, that confusion around what are people doing with the names. But I think it's similar in Somali community, right? That's a given name and then the name of the child's father. But there's also a third name, which is the name of the child's paternal grandfather. Correct. Yes, absolutely. The first name is the given name. The second name is the child's father. And then the third name is the child's grandfather, paternal grandfather. And there's a lot of confusions. Right now, wherever we go within the non-Somali spaces, I am Ahmed Ali, because Ali is my grandfather's name. But if you meet other Somalis, they will say Ahmed Abdillah, because Abdillah is my father's name. And everybody knows me as Ahmed Abdillah because they identify me with my father. So there is a bit of confusion, especially with kids who are born here. Because you have to maintain certain names for them to be able to be picked up from school, to be identified with who they are, to avoid the confusion and so forth. 
but the Somalis have a certain way of identifying within the lineages. And it's also very unique way of identifying. I can name up to probably 30 grandparents from my first grandfather to the last 30 grandparents in a single rhythmic name way, because we keep track of those because the lineages and subclan system that we use maintain that cultural aspect. It's also important to understand that women also keep their names even when they marry. So they don't change their names based on who their husband is. A girl keeps her first name, her dad's name, and her grandfather's father's name. Yeah. The name's important for clinicians to know and how to appropriately call people what they want to be called. Okay. I think I have one more thing about clothing, but I'm not sure how to best discuss it. I know there's a traditional clothing for men too, but I think most men here don't actually wear the traditional clothing as I've seen. Correct. Yes. Most men do not wear the Somali traditional clothing because it's called ma'awis and shawl, and you wouldn't be able to function in this society if you're wearing those. If it's a beautiful, unique attire, most folks do wear it when they are back home. Men do wear khamis, which is like the Middle Eastern garment and during the Friday prayers. For women, it's a sense of modesty to cover themselves. Anything that is beyond their hands and, and the face. There are others who go a little bit above that and put in like a jilbab that covers the entire body, minus the eyes and the nose and the mouth. But that's another option as well. From a clinician's perspective, the only things to be cautious and be Culturally appropriate is for them to excuse themselves if they are going to be changing into the garment for them to be examined. And at the same time, also have that communication, that discussion, or at least point out that if you're going to be touching someone, that you're actually going to be touching someone. Because before you pray the five times a day, you have to do certain type of ritual, which is washing your hands, washing your face, washing your feet. Before you do offer any of the five daily prayers, you really have to cleanse yourself. And if a male someone who is not your husband or your brother or your father touches you, then you really have to go back and, and redo that ritual again. But most of the Somalis do understand that when you go to a doctor, you're going to be talking to them about your needs and they will definitely examine you. And the other thing is that I think a lot of times for the Somali community, there's always been an aspect of when you go to the provider, when you go to your doctor, there's certain things that they are expecting because of the availability of certain resources and more of a treatment aspect of medicine. So someone goes to the doctor, they get examined, they get blood drawn, and they prescribe this medication to take them home with them. So there's always a, some sort of perception that I went to that doctor and I'm expecting to get something when I live there. And oftentimes providers are not communicating well with this patient whereby, hey, you got a common cold, just go home, get soup, relax, sleep, and you should be okay. But there's a good chance this patient was actually expecting some sort of antibiotic treatment. And for them not getting that, they assume that one, I didn't get a best treatment I could, or probably the doctor didn't know exactly what they were doing. So that is just something I really want to make sure that providers are aware that there is a perception that when this patient goes in, they really are expecting to leave that place with some sort of medicine to a certain extent. That's a good point. Because I think one thing that people struggle with is how to deliver preventive care, like breast cancer screening or vaccines, because it happens in the Indian community too, at least in India, where if you go to the doctor, you're going to get medicine. And if, if they're not giving you medicine, why do we waste our time? So that's one. And I, I'm not sure what a good 
solution to that is. But the second part is, inshallah, God willing. I think clinicians struggle with having a conversation when that is a response to important care. I'm not sure what your recommendation would be to appropriately deliver preventive care when both of these cultural aspects exist. Yes. Let me talk about the context of the inshallah. I think that is a very common phrase that majority of Muslims, in particular the Somali community, utilize. Regardless of what you decide or the conversation you are having with a Somali individual, if it's not happening right now and it potentially will happen at a different time, there has to be that phrase that oftentimes you use inshallah, which means God willing. Because in the realm of the Muslim uh, individual, everything is preordained. God is the only one that determines the outcome of what's going to happen. You could decide, okay, tomorrow I'm going to be playing tennis, but you don't know if you're going to make it to tomorrow. Only God knows that. So I think a lot of times, a lot of clinicians do hear that, okay, we're going to start this treatment and we're going to do this and that. And then your patient will say, inshallah, from that aspect. But with prevention, we've come a long way for the Somali community, especially within the Somali Health Board. The work that we've done over the last eight, seven years has always relied primarily on how do we educate our community to understand what it is that you really need to prevent certain chronic diseases, including cancers and diabetes, cholesterol, hypertension. And for a clinician, I think it's important that for them to give some sort of context to the patient, give them some time. Because what happens nowadays is they know that at the end of the day, that it's the medical doctor, the MD or the nurse practitioner that has the last word, the last say in terms of their treatment. But before they see their doctor, half an hour, 30 minutes plus, they spend with other people who are taking notes, right? And that's not how things happen in Somalia. You go in, you see your doctor, you show your issues, and that doctor treats you and you go and leave. This provider here has only about 10 minutes with you at a maximum. And that's the reality because they're spending some time reading your notes before they walk into the room and they come in and they tell you what to expect and how to go about things. It is important that I think the doctor needs to spend few minutes explaining to the patient what it is to have chronic diseases, what causes chronic diseases, and how do you prevent those chronic diseases? Because a lot of times I see pre-diabetic patients, borderline diabetic patients, and what they've got is, okay, if you become diabetic, then you can start this medication, or they get metformin and they're told if you start checking your blood sugar three, four times a day, if you notice something, then start this medication. But then not a whole lot of conversation went into what happened for you to be in this stage at this point. How has your diet been? Do you exercise? Are there other stresses in your life? What kind of food are you eating and so forth? And it's also really important to understand that the dietary aspect of the Somali community has drastically changed for people who were doing fine and they went to refugee camps for over a decade, barely surviving on a one or two meals a day. And then now their fridges are full of food. So you can imagine what that will do to these patients of yours, because now all of a sudden you've got every food that you can lay your hands on and you're not having that conversation with them as far as a balanced diet. I think a lot of times, even conversations about balanced meal is so foreign to the Somali community that you really need to sit down with a dietitian to understand, okay, you're eating your meals in a certain way. You really need to understand what kind of food did they eat and what does that mean for them in order for you to have a conversation of chronic disease management. Breast cancer has come a long way for the screenings as well. I can tell you that this year will be our 
ninth or 10th year having annual health fair. They're oftentimes draw about 1,000 people. We've got about 40, 50 providers and clinics that participate in that. The first three years, I used to really have these conversations with Swedish and Harborview mammography team just to bring the mammography bus at our health fair clinics. And I remember the emails I used to go back and forth and say, we only saw two or three patients. Is it really worth the investment that we're putting into this? My take was, listen, I understand that we only saw four or five, but I really want people to come and see the bus there every single year. I really needed a 40, 50 year old plus mother to come in and put her head inside that bus and figure out what's in it. Because next year when she comes back, she understands what exactly is happening in there. And I can tell you, Raj, through that process, three, four years down the road, we're doing 15 to 20 mammography screenings in each of the healthier settings to a point whereby we couldn't keep up with them. And that is essentially what comes with the prevention aspect and the conversation we have. So maybe the takeaway is as clinicians really focusing on the why and the how before prescribing and talking about next steps. And really a lot of work has to happen in the community to gain people's trust in these new medical interventions like mammography and just get to keep showing up and showing people that it's okay and it's, it's good for the community. And you mentioned something about diet and that's, I think it's a good transition to nutrition. I think you talked about the change in diet as people have immigrated here. One thing about Somali diet that's really interesting to me is that a lot of food actually has similarity to Indian food. Things like sambusas or like samosas. If people don't know what they are, how do I explain it? Like fried dumplings filled with meat or vegetable. And you also have things like alwa, which is the sugar, cardamom, nutmeg, ghee-based dessert. Right. So what people I think don't know what Somali diet entails compared to what Ethiopian food is because... Ethiopian restaurants are so distinct in people's mind. But I think one of the main things to know about Somali diet is the idea of halal. We talked about Islamic tradition being a big influence on the culture. So halal means no pork, no alcohol, no smoking. But what does halal mean to you when eating? So the term halal, as you had described, encompasses almost every single Muslim, and not just particularly for the Somali community. When it comes to food itself, the way the meat or the animal is slaughtered determines whether it's halal or not. For it to be halal, it has to be slaughtered in an Islamic traditional manner. You have to call out that you're sacrificing this animal in the name of God. And you also have to make sure that you are not yielding the knife. Be as humane as possible. I don't know how I can explain slaughtering and being humane in the same context. But there are ways to make sure that you are actually slaughtering this animal as fast as you can and not necessarily just using a blunt edge knife to a certain extent. A part of it is reducing the suffering in the world, even when you're eating meat. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. The rest of the aspect of halal is to make sure that there's no pork or alcoholic beverages in any of the food that you're actually serving. It is forbidden for a Muslim individual to eat pork and also consume alcohol. Having said that, that does not mean that there are Muslims or Somalis who don't consume alcohol. So that's something that I really want to make sure the clinicians are also having that conversation with their patients because they are Muslims and Somali individuals who consume alcohol. And that's a conversation you really need to have with them as well. Cigarette is also something that is forbidden. In the Islamic context, anything that is harmful to your body is something that is oftentimes forbidden for a person to consume. 
our bodies are seen from a religious perspective as a God-given, then we have to make sure that we are protecting it. And an individual Muslim, if you have that conversation with them from a religious perspective, tell them, listen, you've got to take care of your body and you really need to exercise. It's something they will understand a lot faster than if you tell them, go and sign yourself at the YMCA or LA Fitness with Northern Somali cuisine. Primarily, there is dominance in terms of meats, a lot of rice, spaghetti or pasta. You had mentioned samosa and halwa. Somalia, as mentioned early on at the beginning of this podcast, has always been a strategic location. And because of the trade routes and the Indian Ocean, there's always been other cultures of influence. The pasta and spaghetti came into because of the Italian colonizers. And of course, our trade routes along the Indian Ocean. In southern Somalia, on the other hand, it is the breadbasket of the Somali community. There are rivers Juba and Shibele. There are other aspects of food that is very much vegetable-based. So there's a good chance that you might discuss this conversation with a patient who's actually never had salad as a meal in their life because the assumption is that camels are the ones that eat vegetables and not human beings. <laughs> and there's always been a joke within the Somali community when we started having that conversation where one parent did say, listen, we feed goats and camels vegetables. I don't think that's something we consume. But I think that narrative is like changing so much now that some of our healthy eating nutrition class has been around our YouTube channel, our Facebook channel, and other means of communications reach a large number of the Somali population across the globe. That's a changing aspect in terms of the cuisine. But at the same time, a lot of conversation is to be had to make sure that you are including fruits and vegetables into the diet as well. Yeah. You were talking about in northern Somalia, camel is very respected, both the milk and the meat. Obviously, camel is harder to find here, but I think people substitute it with goat. Goat and cow. It's harder to find camel, but it still gets imported here from Australia. Australia has a large number of uh, camels, even though Somalia is considered the only country that has more camels than human beings in the world and exports a lot of those camels and goats and sheep to the Middle East. But there are some restaurants that actually do offer camel meat in the Seattle area. And you can actually also buy it from certain Somali groceries as well. Yeah. When you said you were holding these events to educate the Somali community on a healthier diet, what are one or two things you tell the community? For example, if they have diabetes, they ask you, what should I be eating? Absolutely. I think our healthy eating nutrition team does really wonderful work in terms of the programs that we've had over the years. We partnered with the city of Seattle's Fresh Bucks program to ensure that the family have access to fresh fruits and vegetables. And one of the things that we've done pre-pandemic times is we actually used to take families, seniors for tours at Pike Place Market and some of the local markets in Beacon Hill and Tequila and Kent area. We would actually have a group of five to 15 women just go to the markets and explore what other options are there in terms of fruits and vegetables. And a lot of them have been pleasantly surprised to find different types of vegetables and fruits that they were not accustomed to back in Somalia. I think when it comes to certain patients with, let's say, hypertension or diabetes, it oftentimes is making sure that they are substituting certain fruits and vegetables that they either are familiar with or even giving the options instead of sugary beverages and things to that extent. And this is something that I don't personally do, but my team at the Fresh Breakfast program has really done a good work on that. More importantly, emphasizing on 
a plate of, let's say, lunch. What does that actually include? Oftentimes, because of where families are from and limited food supply, a plate full probably have three quarters of it will have rice and then meat. So now we're actually asking them to divide that into four sections. So you need to have the carbs, whether it's rice or pasta, and then meats and fruits and vegetables on the side. And that is a picture that oftentimes we do share with the families for them to understand that it's really important. That you can make juice out of the fruits and vegetables, but at the same time, we really need to change that image of where you are actually just consuming a bunch of carbohydrates in one city. Yeah, yeah. And the last part of this segment is about substances. We said no smoking, no alcohol. I know some people still do. But there's also something called khat or chat. Am I saying that right? In India, there's beta leaves that we chew. It's, I think, similar to that as stimulant. But also hookah and shisha. I think people should know about that because we often just talk about cigarettes, but people right. consume these stimulants in different forms. Anything specific we should know about those substances? Absolutely. In the context of medicine, I think it's really important that clinicians do understand that when you're talking particularly with, with cigarettes, in the questionnaire, you've got here screening a patient asking, do you smoke? An individual that actually uses hookah and shisha will most likely say no to that because they don't consider hookah and shisha as nicotine. When we all know that definitely does contain some form of nicotine, if not more. Matter of fact, I think sitting in one hour setting of enjoying that hookah flavored nicotine is equivalent to smoking two or three packs of cigarettes. So it's actually a much higher content of nicotine than a person who smokes a cigarette. That's essentially comes down to how do you ask those questions? How do you culturally appropriately ask those questions? If you're going to be checking a box that says no smoking and this patient actually consumes hookah and shisha, then you did not do your work efficiently for that patient. It's also important to ask another question, which is, is anybody else smoking hookah and shisha in the house? Because the wife might not be, but the husband might be smoking hookah and shisha and they've got an asthmatic child in the house. So that is also another conversation we always have with our communities about making sure that you are not consuming these things in the house. And by the way, the hookah and shisha is not a Somali tradition. It's actually became some sort of tradition here in the West because young folks needed something of a pastime. They really needed other places to enjoy themselves and go and socialize. They can go to the bars and drink alcohol, and therefore, they figured hookup bars and shisha bars as a place where we can relax, chill, and smoke this stuff. And so I am always out there up front indicating that this is not a Somali culture. If you go to Somalia, there's a very good chance you're not going to see any hookup bars and shisha bars. Khat or chat, on the other hand, is a stimulant. And chemically, it's actually similar to amphetamines. It's a green leafy substance that gets chewed. And someone could be sitting from, let's say, noon to 4 a.m. just chewing those green leaf vegetables. I call them vegetables, but they're not actually vegetables. It's widely consumed in Somalia. It is predominantly men who use khat. There are some women who also use khat as well. It is illegal here in the United States, as well as the European countries. There are people who bring them illegally. It's also good to ask that question. Is someone actually utilizing that? Because not only does it damage your teeth, but it also leads to impotence from the studies where we have seen sometimes consuming this product 
would have some sort of depression, anxieties, and other things that most times are not able to describe to you, but they will also describe to you a somatic physical ailment. My head hurts or my back hurts or I can't sleep to a certain extent. So I think it's really, really important that clinicians have that conversation, especially with men. And you can see that by actually looking at the teeth as you're talking to your patient. Yeah, I got two more questions if you got it in you. So the next question is about traditional medicine. And if we need to know anything specific about that, I think often with my patients, I see actually scars. I think it's from fire burning when they were right. younger. And this idea of evil eye too, I think it's important because there's this idea that when you're directing comments of praise, that it can actually cause harm or illness to befall them. And I think those are things we need to be careful about. I think both of those are really good points. With regards to traditional medicine, there are some herbal products that the Somali community consumes a lot. And one of them is black seed. It's called habit soda. Habit soda is described in the Quran and Islamic hadith by the Prophet Muhammad that it helps with a lot of different ailments. And there are a lot of studies that have been done to show that it does help with certain things. But there's a perception that it actually helps with every single ailment that is out there. And that's not the case. So you have people who actually use for almost everything that they can think of. You would have patients who are on your diabetic medicine, but at the same time, they are taking habit soda or the black seed as well. They've managed to infuse it into oil forms of that. You can rub onto the body for, let's say, pains and things to a certain extent. Having done my own drug-drug interactions to a lot of things, I have not come across a single issue, particularly with black seed especially with common therapeutics that we utilize for different diseases. But that's something that oftentimes the Somali community consumes and uses, particularly the seniors or the elders, members of the community utilize that. There are other things like called manuka that oftentimes they say help with cough and common cold and things to that extent. A lot of the other things are based on garlic and different things. It was very popular during the beginning of the pandemic with COVID, where a lot of folks were actually just doing cocktails of different things. And especially when there was no vaccines and there were no other ways to check what you've got and so forth. With the regards to the evil eye and excessive compliments, it's something that a lot of times culturally, it's encouraged, but at the same time discouraged to a certain extent, right? You can compliment someone and say all great things about them. As long as you say, mashallah, that is the key word right there. Mashallah, that means God bless. For instance, you got an infant and it's like, wow, they're healthy and they're doing well. There's a good chance that parents might feel a little bit uncomfortable with all those compliments because they feel like then something bad is going to happen to them. But if you say mashallah, then that clears up for you. A lot of times they will say internally with themselves, maybe giving them the look like, stop talking about my child in this context. I think it's being humble and you can give people compliments, but don't overdo it. At the same time, if people are aware of the good things that happen in your life. Let's say a lot of people will not post on social media about the meals that they had. Nowadays, everybody put in Snapchat, like, hey, listen, I'm at this restaurant, look at my Starbucks latte and take pictures of these sending over. There's a large population in the Somali community who wouldn't do that because they understand that there's somebody else on the other side of the social media who really doesn't have what you have. And you might end up losing what you have because of an evil eye. Yeah. Okay, so let's do the last segment of the podcast, which is actually about community support. 
I think this is actually a core part of what you do with the Somali Health Board. And maybe a good time to review all the work you've done in COVID because COVID has shown how much mistrust there's in community about healthcare institutions. So where do people turn for health information and how has it been being part of Somali Health Board communicating with patients? So when the pandemic hit, I think one of the effects of the organization Somali Health Board was how do we respond to this pandemic? This is what we sign up for. How do we ensure that our communities are actually getting not just the real information, but real-time correct information from Department of Health, from Public Health? There was a lot of misinformation about COVID-19, not just from mainstream media. The President of the United States was also sharing a lot of misinformation at that time. That's an authoritative figure that a lot of times, a lot of immigrants and people who come from certain parts of the world look at that as, wait a second, if the individual who's at the very top of this society is actually questioning what the pandemic is, then maybe we need to start to think through if this is a reality. So we needed to combat this misinformation about the pandemic itself. So we established a committee ourselves, which is the COVID response team that included myself and other public health professionals with Somali health board members and made sure that we established a page within our website, a hub whereby we're sharing this information real time, correct information that we're debunking misinformation in its essence from the beginning. And any information comes from the Department of Health, within an hour, we translate that materials into Somali and we share right away. And that's something we did very frequently. We did it very fast. We also partnered very well with the other ethnic medias, including the Somali TV that gets aired all across the globe. It's based in Minnesota, but we've worked with them very closely. One of the aspects of the pandemic was to determine what is the correct information to share and how do we share that? Is it relevant or is it irrelevant? And the COVID response team determined that early on, that we're going to have a weekly conversation called the COVID Conversations every Friday, and we'll bring three people in each of those. It had to be a medical doctor or someone in the health field, and he had to have a small health board staff member and that religious leader from the community. Because we understood that a lot of times myself could say everything I could about COVID, a sizable population in the community will listen to me, but there are pockets of individuals who would not pay attention to anything I say unless Sheikh Ahmed Noor, the Imam of the largest mosque in Seattle, actually says, hey, this is correct and this is the way we're going to go about it and they will follow that thought process. So early on, we're very adamant about making sure that we have the right people sitting at the table, making those conversations with the community. We held this ongoing basis every single Friday throughout the entire pandemic. When we lost a couple lives at the beginning of the pandemic within the Somali community, we made sure that we were going to the mosques and making sure that families and our communities understand that the importance of social distancing, the importance of making sure that they shouldn't come to the mosque for prayers when the pandemic was at its heights. We also made sure that families understand that during the pandemic, the burial ceremonies have changed drastically and nobody should be there except the immediate families and the, and the religious leaders as well. It took a long time. We actually set up our own Zoom meetings for mourning families who were going through death so their families can actually meet and see what was going on at the same time. I think as a trusted messengers within the Somali committee, it was really 
tough for us to do the work, but it was also on calling at the same time. We established COVID testing sites in almost every single site in Tequila, particularly in, at the mosques. And we weren't able just to do this our, ourselves, but we made sure that we worked closely with King County Public Health. Our very first COVID testing site was a two-day-long weekend in Federway and Renton, where we actually tested over 2,500 people. And that was the very first pop-up site in South King County in the entire pandemic. And this was a partnership we established early on with the Bay Good Foundation, which is Beyonce's foundation, was able to support us with almost three truckloads of COVID supplies and PPEs from Texas really early on to make sure that families have supplies that they need. Then came the vaccination phase and we decided that we really need to make sure that we are out there and vaccinated. We need to make sure that when I take the vaccine, I produce a short clip video that families were able to share and people were able to see that I am being vaccinated and I'm doing okay. And then a week later, I interview how I was feeling and so forth. And we made sure that every single image that goes out there, whether it's the mask and that we have Dr. Anissa Ibrahim, who is a pediatrician at Harborview, they see her face putting a mask on. We're not just taking images from public health, the Department of Health just putting a logo on it, but people that they can relate to. We have the imams at the forefront and so forth. And during the vaccination process, I think we're happy to report that we vaccinated almost 80% of the Somali population in King County ourselves through various clinic sites, including every single school in Southeast Seattle, middle elementary school through the Seattle Public Schools. That's awesome. So Somali Health Board has done all this impressive work, obviously. Is there anywhere else that clinicians should know that people go for services or community services that we should know to refer to? Aside from the COVID response, we have eight different programs. That eight different programs include the whole child care initiative program that clinicians can refer to, child care providers that have questions about how to make sure the children that they take care of are kindergarten ready, they're healthy, and we have a mental health team that works with them and our social workers and so forth. We have a centering pregnancy program that works closely with HealthPoint and other clinics that primarily determine how do we ensure that prenatal, postnatal care is given to Somali pregnant women. We have a mental health program that encompasses both behavioral health with autism as well as mental health for youth and the general population. Along with that, we have a senior project for our elderly seniors that meets weekly basis and has these meeting spaces for them to talk about their challenges. And this was started primarily during the pandemic because we've been asking our seniors to stay at home, don't leave. You're going to be impacted by COVID. So we decided that we're going to give them tablets at home. We're going to start Zoom classes for them. We're going to start exercise classes for them. And we're going to talk about the medicine and their health needs. And that has been ongoing now since the last two years. We've got a very active soccer team that includes over 100 Somali kids that have won several championships, not just recreationally, but actually won several championships within the Seattle area in King County. And that is something that I think the clinicians can also refer to kids about being active, physically active. The other thing we have done really well is nutrition and healthy eating. But the program manager also does CPR and stop the bleed trainings as well for families, daycare providers, and individuals, because there's a lot of questions that comes along from the community. Hey, listen, what if I help this person and then they die? Am I going to be responsible for that? And there we have that conversation about, listen, you are not responsible. We really need you to be able to not leave somebody who is in need. 
but these are the tools that you need to make sure you help and, and save life during these times. So those are some of the programs that we've been able to implement. Along with that, I think the aspect of the organization is to not just create programs, but we are also socially responsible to ensure that we are participating in policies and decision-making process within the county, the state, and the city where we are. Right now, we've got a good team in Minnesota that has decided that they really want to replicate this model within the Somali population in Minnesota. Very soon, we'll call ourselves Somali Health Board Washington, and then we'll have another Somali Health Board Minnesota. But we're also working with the University of Washington on various researches. We've published multiple research. Right now, we're working on a prenatal, postnatal research called Marwa Afimat in Somalia. And our team will be actually be heading to Somalia to complete the observation of that particular project and come up with the next phase in terms of what that means. Because I think, Raj, it's really important for us as an organization, as a community that has done a lot of work here in Washington State, we have an obligation to actually have an impact from where we came from. And that is the next phase of our work that we really want to be able to give back in rebuilding the health systems in Somalia. So any clinician that really wants to be part of that journey is more than welcome to join us as well. And that is something that we hope that we have an impact on the global aspect of our work. Awesome. Okay. The last question is, what is one thing that you would recommend to the clinician or you want your own doctor to know? I think one thing that I can think about is that for the Somali community, it's a very resilient community. It's a community that has gone through trauma. It's gone through displacement has gone through refugee process and settled here. And now also at the same time, going through the same process as any other community, whether it's institutional racism, black lives and so forth, at the same time has been able to come together and be resilient in every step of the way. I think one thing that I would love every clinician to understand is that some of them have settled here and fluently speaking English and contributing members of society, but they're still all the ones that still are healing. I think a lot of times that reflects on mental health and PTSD and treated PTSD within the Somali community to a certain extent. And I talk about this because not a whole lot of treatment goes into that. There are a lot of patients who would oftentimes go to the doctor and talk about physical ailments, but it a lot of times, it's the way they describe it. If you ever have a patient that says, every part of my body actually hurts and you cannot pinpoint to anything, I think it's time to start screening them for mental health, for PTSD, and other stigmatized health diseases within the community as well. Yeah, that's a great takeaway, Ahmed. Thank you again for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate you. I know that was a marathon, but I'm sure our audience members have learned a lot from this episode. Thank you. Thank you, Raj, for having me. It's been a pleasure being on this podcast with you. Thanks for joining me, Raj Sundar, in this episode of the Healthcare for Humans podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support this work, please share it with others and leave a review. As always, show notes can be found over at healthcareforhumans.org. And feel free to contact me for feedback or show ideas through the website, or through email at healthcareforhumans at yahoo.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.
This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent any of the participants' past, current, or future employers unless explicitly expressed as so. Always seek advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with regards to your own personal questions about what medical conditions you may be experiencing. This Healthcare for Humans project is based on Duemish land and makes a regular commitment to real rent Duemish. If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Better with Dr. Erica, hosted by Dr. Erica, provides support and guidance in navigating stress-related challenges to transform your relationship to self-care. Each episode arms you with the tools needed to be better, do better, and live better. There was an incredible episode that you should check out called Touch and Connections as Tools for Healing and Better Mental Health. In this episode, her guest breaks down ways to use physical touch as a form of healing for trauma and grief. Check out Better with Dr. Erica on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.